You're listening to the Maniverse Podcast, and this is session number 97. This is the podcast where we talk about the business of tabletop games and explore what it takes to make a local game store an elf business. That means easy, lucrative, and fun. We believe that by learning new skills and strategies and working together, we can elevate the entire industry, make a greater impact on our local communities, and create profitable businesses that allow us to enjoy the hobbies and games that got us into the industry in the first place. If you want to fast-track your game store success, then head over to maniversesaga.com forward slash join and become a member of the Maniverse Network. That's where you'll find a community of game store owners dedicated to building their businesses, as well as all the seminars from the 2020 LGS Success Summit and additional content, marketing reviews, and training only available to members of the network. Go to maniversesaga.com forward slash join to become a member today. All right, welcome to another episode of the Maniverse Podcast. I'm your host, Tom Traplin, and I have with me one Molly Zeff. She is one of the two co-founders of Flying Leap Games, and she is here to tell us all about her very... uh, interesting and unique way of getting into the publishing business, getting into the games business, and her experience visiting uh, a crazy amount of game stores. So I'm just going to hand it over to Molly and let her tell us all about who she is and how she got started, and we're just going to jump into the conversation. So thank you very much for for coming on to the show. Thank you, Tom, for having me. This is awesome. Very exciting, very excited to share a, a hopefully unique angle today to both publishing and to just, you know, what I've seen in terms of what makes a successful store, which we'll get into later. I, as Tom said, I run Flying Leap Games, and I think a big part of what we have done that is unique is we got into retail really early and in a number of countries. And, you know, we'll get into some of the details later, but I heard at some point in the last couple of years that what we were doing, what I was doing in terms of visiting stores, no one else was was doing it, sounded like, at least at the scale. So as Tom mentioned, I visited a lot of game stores. I estimate it's around 275 game and toy stores, actually. A couple bookstores in there, uh, a few bookstores, and always in person to um, these stores that, that are mostly in the U.S., but also all in a big circle around the U.K. and then a couple of big cities and other places in Canada as well. So that's a lot of the way we've gotten into retail. And I realized I had something to teach before last year's GAMA, the Game Manufacturers Association Expo. So in 2020, about just over a year ago, actually, I did a workshop for small and new publishers on how to get into retail and shared nine ways. So there are other ways we've done it, you know, mostly though, GAMA, attending GAMA, and also, you know, visiting the stores in person. So not that I want to jump into that too much right now, but that's a big way that we've gotten into stores, and I can share some stories and, and fun pieces later about how we got into other countries as well. That is definitely something I want to talk about. And before we go into all of that, uh, I do want to know about how you got into the publishing business, or more specifically, why you decided to get into the publishing business. Because of all the things you can do, right? Why, uh, why do this? Sure. That's a funny story. And actually, this has been a really big transition or was a big transition for me. So I was working in nonprofits and social enterprises for about eight or nine years, focused on market-based solutions to poverty, basically supporting people 
who are lower income in, you know, getting jobs or learning, you know, um, learning a trade or just um, getting more money for what they did. That was in fair trade for many years. I worked in fair trade coffee, chocolate and tea. And while working in fair trade, I realized that I wasn't really using my creative side much. And I have a really strong, creative, quirky side to just who I am, to my personality. So back in about 2010, and this, this will probably amuse you and some listeners, I initially thought, okay, I'm going back to business school in three to five years. I need to either write a book or invent something to make money to pay for it. And so, you know, both of those would use my creative side and also make a lot of money, right? Which it's funny in part because people do not go into games to make a lot of money usually, although maybe they have that idea in mind. So what happened is in 2010, around my 26th birthday, I started writing a book on how to fail well, because I feel like I'm pretty good at failing and then turning it into a success or, you know, turning it into something positive. And I think I got about a page in and realized that I needed to fail a whole lot more maybe wait till my 50s when I'd failed more to write that book. Well, shortly after that, sometime that summer, I suppose, I decided I really wanted to invent a game. And I was specifically inspired, I mean, other than spending, you know, years playing games, specifically, you know, often party games or like strategy games, I was inspired by the book Would You Rather. Now, probably some listeners out there are familiar with the Would You Rather books. It's also a game. But I was most familiar with the book Would You Rather, a bright pink book with big green letters. And it's about whether you would rather have this absurd scenario or this absurd scenario. And you have to, you know, pick one when someone poses it to you. So it's, it's read like a game. And so the classic example, classic example I like giving that we often provide on our website is, would you rather have a ketchup dispensing navel belly button or a pencil sharpening nostril? And there are lots of more risque ones or some really funny ones in there. And I thought, gosh, people are paid to sit around and be weird all day. I just a picture of men, for some reason I pictured it being more men, sitting around making up funny situations and just being weird all day and being paid to be weird for a living. And I thought, I could be weird for a living. So that thought and that book specifically and the idea of putting people in weird situations led to the inspiration for this first game, Wing It. If people aren't able to see and want to look it up on the website, it's flyingleapgames.com. has our game Wing It with the penguin flying with a jetpack on the front. And the idea of wing it, I think just came out of would you rather really that, you know, you are put in these ridiculous, weird situations and you have to use random funny resources to tell a story about how you'll get out of that situation. So there's always a funny problem in a situation. And so I came up with that idea of using three resources to get out of a situation. And I called my friend, John, very quirky, smart friend from my youth. We've been friends now for about 25 years. I called him out of the blue in uh, Boston, where we were both living, in that August, and I said, John, you want to invent a game with me? I told him the idea, and he said, sure. Neither of us had any experience, mind you. So, I mean, you know, I had got to start somewhere, right? And so John and I began meeting regularly. I mean, it would be like every few weeks, sometimes a little more often, sometimes very infrequently, just spouting out funny ideas for situations and resources for an hour or so. And so that initial game development took quite a while, but that was how we developed the first game is just us meeting up at one of our kitchen tables and just saying funny, strange ideas to each other. And um, that's, that's how I, I'm getting a little beyond myself, but that's how I initially got into it was I thought I need a way to pay for business school and I wanted to use my creative side. I like how you wanted to create a business to pay for business school. Right. Not, maybe not in that 
that exact uh, uh, order, but uh, it's kind of funny how that sort of came about that way. That is actually an irony I never thought of. It's a good point. And to, to be really frank and open about this, we definitely started playtesting the summer before business school, and I worked on it during business school. So we didn't actually launch the company as in incorporate until summer 2017. So what was the, like, I, when I was a, a youth in my, uh, my childhood, I liked making games myself. That's one of the reasons I got into magic. It's one of the reasons I kind of got into this whole world of games, right? I love making games, and it's something I always wanted to do when I grew up. So the whole game design, the publishing side of things, has always been a really interesting side of, of the business to me. So hearing your experience of just like, I had this great idea, and then I just wanted to make it happen, and we just started exploring, you know, the concepts that kind of create the game, right? The rules, the uh, the individual elements of the game, and that sort of thing. And then you take that and turn it into an actual physical thing. Is uh, I, I I find that process very interesting, and uh, I uh, I can I can definitely appreciate the fact that you took it from you know just this idea that. Just seemed like oh, this, this would be cool, and you turned it into a real product that has been uh, very popular, is uh, is incredible. So once you had this idea and you've got you know the elements and all the pieces and you kind of have okay this is the game this is Wigan this is what we've got. At what point did it become like a, a real physical tangible object and what was the the journey to get there? Wow, that's a big question. Okay, <clears throat> give me a moment here. So. Once we had several hundred cards, I mean a few hundred cards, we were not entirely sure when to start testing, but John felt like, you know, we had enough in the summer of 2014, <clears throat> right after I had applied for, for business school, actually. And so I had some time when I was still in the same town that we could start playtesting. I thought, okay, he's probably right, you know, so I went with it. He much he operates on instinct much more than I do, which is helpful, I think, for the business. That we operate a little bit differently. And we began playtesting it. We literally, I mean, in terms of the physical object, I guess that's the thing I want to make sure listeners know that you often just start with a scrappy printed version from Staples, for example. And so I'm pretty sure it was Staples or some local printer, maybe Gnome copies, something like that in, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where we printed a physical version. I still have one of those early versions. It's kind of cute to look back and say, oh, look, it's, you know, literally <laughs> black words on white pieces of paper, just print it out and then cut out Staples. Those humble and, beginnings. Hmm? The humble beginnings. Humble beginnings. There you go. Yeah, every game begins like that. Now I have, now I, I have less, uh, <clears throat> a little bit less self-conscious about you know how game looks early on. But it is, it's funny to look back at that early stage game and see you know our current games coming out look like the same thing, right? So basically, following that playtesting and some playtesting in during business school, mostly John I think is the one who began research on manufacturers. And we ended up going, I mean, there's obviously a big jump here from like, you know, that early paper copy to, you know, printing out a nice version that looks like this physical version I'm holding up now, the, the nice box here. So <clears throat> we chose a manufacturer called What's Games because that was the only company we found in China at the time that had what's called ICTI certification or International Council of Toy Industry Manufacturers. It's a certification for ethical treatment of their workers. Now it's called the Ethical Toy Program, a much more manageable name. So if people want to look it up, they can Google anyone out there. You can Google Ethical Toy Program. And <clears throat> that was really important to me coming out of Fair Trade that we chose a manufacturer who, you know, 
ideally was treating workers well and, and certified by a third party that they were doing so. I chose that one along with John and I think probably our graphic designer at the time who still works with us years later. And <clears throat> I don't believe for Wing It <clears throat> initially that we used Game Crafter, but we actually did, and I still have this copy too, we actually did print out a physical colored version of the box at Staples initially just to kind of, you know, see what it looked like, engage the size, right? It was initially a smaller box. And that copy is, it's taped together. If people look on our Kickstarter for Winget, they can still see what that box looked like because it's the one we actually used in the Kickstarter filming. So you get to see an early, early stage version. It doesn't look that scrappy. It's a little hard to tell from filming, but it definitely isn't the, you know, hardy, firm, really nice box that we had today. And honestly, in terms of the physical product piece, I mean, you know, in my mind, what you ask is almost like a very simple answer or a simple question and simple answer, which is that, you know, we submitted files to the manufacturer after we completed the Kickstarter in 2017. That was when we incorporated and then ran the Kickstarter shortly thereafter. And they turn the files into something really nice and they send you a plain white box. I believe I might still have that version too. Just a plain white box and plain white cards. It's very, very simple. And you feel like, oh, it's a physical thing, but it's not even printed on yet, right? It's still very simple. And it doesn't look like much other than a box, but it feels great. It feels hearty and exciting. Anyway, and then eventually they do send you a sample, of course. Although some, some early stage samples you get are actually, I'm sort of drawing a rectangle for people who can't see me, a big, big rectangle in the air of just the cards. And it's a big, glossy, I don't think it's laminated, but really, really shiny, nice paper that is gigantic with all the cards laid out. And you've got to individually go card by card if there are, you know, lots of written text on the cards like with us. You have to individually go and see if there were any mistakes made. I mean, we'd already, you know, edited it, of course, but you want to double check. And then you approve files after correct, making any corrections. And then eventually they, you know, I think they do send you a full sample. But then after that, you know, they just send you however many thousands you order, right? So it's kind of like a big jump from getting the white sample to possibly getting, I believe, the full sample. But sometimes I don't even think I've gotten that to then just getting the full deal, you know. And I will just, I do want to just say, it's really important that... Um, I will point out, it is very common to get a copy through Gamecrafter. Probably many of your listeners know about Gamecrafter or have even used it. And if you haven't used it, I highly recommend them for samples. I still have my early stage copy of The Million Dollar Doodle, which is our third game that came out last year. And honestly, you know, I, it's nothing like the, the final in terms of the box, but it's still a very nice, hearty version. And I was able to use that at Gamma last year to show people, you know, retailers in particular, what the box would look like. So that's another step in between that sometimes occurred, but I don't even think we knew about Game Crafter for the first wing yet. So that's how you do it. You know, submit the files. Hmm? So those are the nuts and bolts. Those are some nuts and bolts, yep. So the the angle for this particular segment, I suppose, is, uh, you know, what does it take to succeed as a board game publisher? So that is the like the physical manifestation of creating a game, creating a product that you can actually then sell. Uh, for you, did you, how did you go about doing that? So you went from the concept to the idea, you had the design, you had all the files, you had the graphic design to create everything. Did you just then say, okay, I want 10,000 copies and I'll figure it out? Or did you like, did you, how, how, how did you get it into the, the, the hands of the retailers and that sort of thing? Ah, okay. Well, that followed some months after the Kickstarter 
but we were getting into early retailers by just walking in the door. And that, I mean, that will come up again later. So I wanna, I wanna break your question into two. First, we had to actually run the Kickstarter to see how many copies to make. You know, that sort of self-guides what to do. And for me, I always knew I wanted to turn this game into a company. I knew that I wanted to start a company. I mean, we weren't, we were just starting Flying the Games to produce one game. So my advice for anyone out there who's thinking about launching a publishing company, if you're pretty early stage, is to, to, and even for later stage publishers, is to think about what are the avenues, what are the ways you want to sell B2C, you know, business to consumer or direct to consumer, business to business, like direct to retailer or through distributors, which is another form of B2B, business to business. We want to sell all of them, but we do very little investment. In fact, we're going to ramp this up soon, but we do very little investment in B2C at all. We mostly sell the stores, in other words. We don't sell a lot direct to consumer. And the reason I mention that in the context of the Kickstarter is that if you're mostly trying to sell, you know, games to the Kickstarter and then you won't, you know, necessarily have time to invest in getting into retail, that's okay. That's actually really common. But I spend a lot of time and I enjoy it. I don't mean to, to brag about it. I spend a lot of time coaching people on how to get into retail, you know, especially after the Kickstarter because I know people have extra games left and they, they want to get into retail, but they just don't have someone guiding them on how. Uh-huh. Which is also why I gave the big session at Gamma, the Game Manufacturers Association, expo last year on how to get into retail so when we went into our kickstarter we didn't know we would only sell a few hundred copies now it's not tiny but it's not it wasn't like there was a lot of buzz as my friend dave salisbury who's a retailer in the uk would say it wasn't like there was a lot of buzz about wing it we had a very modest kickstarter it was a little under twelve thousand dollars it was eleven thousand dollars and something for a ten thousand dollar goal but again i knew i was starting a business and wanted to really emphasize the retail side so in terms of that retail side, once we ran the Kickstarter, which, you know, again, was very small, and that was largely because I didn't know to build up an email list for months beforehand. We were doing it mostly with people we knew, and then, you know, we obviously had other people who just found it. But you know, most of the people we, we knew, I would say, I've never counted, like, exactly how many, but we weren't spending, you know, nine months going to cons, so we just didn't know to do that. You know, where people go to conventions for nine months, actually build an email list, as you probably know, just more for the listener's sake. So again, really small Kickstarter. So we had what, like, you know, around maybe 1500 or 1600 copies to sell still. Well, we were walking into stores in cities that we were living in or were from. So St. Louis was where we're both from. And then I was living in New York City at the time by then. John was living in Boston where I had been living. So we walked into stores in those three cities and just tried to hand sell it. And so that way and through a trip to dc we got into a 10 stores i think we had an 11th on the way but then what happened is i showed up at the game manufacturers association spring march of 2018 and people who have heard me on a podcast or any kind of interview before have probably heard this story because it's a story i often tell it's it's fun to tell and it's exciting um so do you mind if i jump into the retail side how we first got into yeah I always feel like I don't want people to get tired of me talking, but this is a particularly fun part of the, the interview always. So I actually went to Gamma almost as an accident in the sense that I had to decide whether to go to Gamma or Origins. I was going to get, I think, a free, uh, a free booth badge with our consolidator, which is hit point sales. It's really important to line up a consolidator, consolidator early on. So the main ones being hit point sales, impressions, or PSI, and those companies get you into distribution more easily when you have just a game or a couple games. 
So I was working with Hitpoint Sales. They, I think they actually suggested going to Origins, but Origins is in June, and I had my third cousin in Brooklyn's bat, uh, it was actually my third cousin is it once removes bat mitzvah coming up in Brooklyn, which is funny just because we didn't really know each other that well, but I thought, I'm living in Brooklyn. When's the next time I'll have a family event in Brooklyn? I didn't have you know much family there. So I decided that I would go to Gamma instead, which is in March. Now, the Gamma Expo, I cannot emphasize enough. This is my, my if my people get nothing else out of this interview, if you run a publishing company and you're not yet in retail or want to expand your retail sales, just go to Gamma and spend a lot of time at the bar and also, of course, you know, have a ex- booth at the exhibit hall. Here's what happened with us that led us to grow really quickly. We actually went from about 10 stores to almost 60 because of Gamma, and that happened really quickly. Sort of revving it up here, not to build up too much, but revving it up because this is an exciting part. So when I showed up at Gamma, I knew almost no one. And I also missed the first night's big networking event. In fact, it felt like a main networking event. It was on a Monday night because my plane was delayed coming from New York City to Reno. Yeah, of course, of course, right? But in a way, that was a good thing because even though I got in super late and showed up at, I was staying in a hostel because it was very affordable, got there pretty late. The next night I decided, well, I'm going to go where the retailers are. The retailers had an event and I thought I'll just show up at Edge Nightclub, which is kind of like a bar at the, at the location where Gamma is usually located. It's uh, the Peppermill Resort and Casino in Reno. So there's this Edge Nightclub. They had a big retail event put on by a a TCG company, a, a trading card company. And I actually got there after the presentation, but was still offered a drink. And they were like, oh, so how'd you like the presentation? And I said, well, I wasn't really here. And they're like, oh, you can still have a free drink. When um, I had walked in with my St. Louis retailers, who were some of the only people I knew, they saw me outside with a grocery sack, actually. This, is, this part's a little little funny. It should be embarrassing, but it's fine. I had walked back from the grocery store, partly to save money on the lift and just, or the, you know, the Uber and see a little of Reno. I walked back from the grocery store. I had a bag of groceries with me. I walk into a nightclub, you can imagine, with a bag of groceries. And then I get my free drink, and I walk into a little inlet at the bar. And the inlet has a group of people, it turns out, are all retailers and all friends are friendly. I just start talking with them. And I, and I would do a, what I call a really soft sell. I would just say, oh, when we made our game, you know, da, 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 da. Like I would mention that we had a game at least. After a little while, Matt, who is Matt, that is the owner of Batcave Games out of Vancouver, asked me, well, tell you what, why don't I take a look at your game while you eat your cheese? Because he, he knew that I had cheese I wanted to eat since I just hadn't had enough for dinner. So I started eating my cheese at this bar. They still remind me of this. You know, they, some of them knew about, thought about it a year later even. So I started eating my cheese, and Matt looks at Wing It. He takes the box, he turns it over, and he looks at the back. And he says to me after, you know, skimming or reading the back briefly, he goes, are you on PayPal? Because I paid Pal- I He goes, are you on PayPal? Because I'd PayPal you for 10 of these right now. And I said, really? I mean, that 10 was a good sale. I think we had just sold to the Strand in New York City 10 or 12. That was a good size sale. And he said, yeah, I could sell five of these tomorrow. I could sell five of these right now. Watch me. I always like to share it as like a little brag, right? Yeah, no, it's a great story, Tom. And so he proceeds to get everybody's attention. I always feel like I don't want to like take take over the conversation at a bar, but he kind of took over the conversation, you know, on behalf of me and this this game, Wing It. And he gets their attention. He teaches people to play. Like he explains it and they start playing. And I'm feeling like Annie in the musical Annie, like pinch me, please. You know, like this is really happening. Well, they played and they got another retailer, Andrew Zorowitz, out of bed. He runs Foam Brain Games. He's kind of like this retail retailer guru. 
And he came and he, he felt like this was going to be a hit. They helped me raise my price that night. They said, it's, it's not really a $25 game. You can you should raise it to 30 So I did. The first printing, I think we still did 25 but I raised it to 30 after that. Um, and they talked and gave me advice so, so late that we had to leave the nightclub when it closed at midnight, go out to these white couches in this big open area where people gather by the main bar at the, the Pepper Mill Resort and Casino. We talked for about four hours, so till about 2.15 in the morning. And we just talked and they gave me advice and we got to know each other. I felt, we were, you know, we started becoming friends that night. And I remember going back to my hostel and sending my family over our WhatsApp from, for the family. I sent a description of what had happened. Well, the next day we began getting orders, some of them from other places in the country, like someone who said, you know, I live in, I think, Florida. I couldn't make Gamma because I'm having a baby soon. But I'd love to get, you know, 24 copies, let's say. And, you know, 24 being, of course, a very big order and especially for a you know a small company but just in general it's a big order for one store and matt let me know that he had shared the story of what had happened with with on a retail group on this sort of like private retailers facebook group and he told me that at the show at the uh, exhibit hall that day and we started getting a lot of interest in getting orders and in fact one one retailer eric biggelstone had been from games of berkeley which i had cold call at some point but not heard back from and they became a customer, and Eric and I are friends now. A lot of these people are friends on Facebook now. Well, we sold out four weeks later, almost exactly four weeks later. We actually took an order for 48 games that we couldn't even fulfill. And she ended up getting a small amount, like I think eight games. We had to lower her order later because she was like not able to sell as fast as she wanted. But like, you know, getting an order for 48 games right when you run out is both exciting and also kind of like, oh no, it's an it's a, oh shoot moment. We, we, we had those, right? So that's how we grew really quickly. And that night also, I mean, that night at the bar and also just that event also helped us get into Canada. I think it also played a role in getting us into the UK later, which Dave Salisbury, who's a friend from the UK, really helped with. He has a store in Manchester, and he helped us get into distribution in the UK. So out of that came other countries as well. That was a lot of storytelling, but that's that's the early stage. And so if I can just kind of take a step back from that story and say, what you know, what are the takeaways? If you're a newer small publisher and you couldn't already tell this, it's really important to go to the bar at night. It's really important to just be around retailers and talk to a lot of people. I do as many people as possible. I can't tell you how many connections I made, you know, late at night or how much I've learned. Just how many friendships even that I've deepened as well. I mean, there are friendships in there too, which is really nice because you're working with your friends, right? Which is fantastic. I, mm -hmm. I think that makes a lot of sense because this business, when you are a retailer, I keep, I've, uh, I advocate to make it more relationship-based than transaction-based. And I think that's pretty common for most of the successful retailers as well, is that they, they know that, uh, you know, it's not just a one-off, you know, shot. You're not just selling a game to a random person off the street. Most of the time, these people become friends or at least friendly with people that are involved. And they take ownership over the business and they start to feel like it's part of, uh, you know, like there are a huge number of people who go to game stores and believe that they're, it's their game store, right? It's like that, that's their spot. That's their cheers, right? They go to where everyone knows their name. And I think the idea of if you want to succeed in this business, it works on both ends too. Like, it's funny how many people that you've mentioned I've spoken to at some point in the past, either had them on the podcast or they were, uh, they were speakers at the summit that I hosted on in November. Uh, so many people are more than happy to share their knowledge and their expertise and, and connections and help you if they can help you. This is probably one of the nicest things about this industry is that the people who were really 
I want to say at the top of their game, the ones who are putting in the work and they, you know, they, they treat it like a, a real business and it's, it's a real worthwhile endeavor. Uh, they aren't, they're not the kind of person who would, uh, you know, undercut you or try and, uh, I want to say bad things, but they're, they're good people. They're just good people. And they, they're, if they can help you, they will. And I think that's probably one of the biggest lessons is that if you want to succeed, you need to create those connections. You need to find those people and, find a way to get in front of them and help them and add value to that relationship and, and create a, like a real, not just a business relationship, but like a real friendship. And that's a, a great foundation for success pretty much no matter what you're doing. I was going to say just definitely. And I would say one, one funny addition to what you're saying is that sometimes you feel like you become good enough friends that it actually becomes harder to do the sales part. It must feel funny bringing up a sale, you know, with someone, but it's still important to do that and to get past that feeling because, you know, you do need to make a sale and make money at the end of the day. So I've, you know, try to push past that, but it is, it is hard. Like I get to know people pretty well over Facebook or from visiting their store, visiting and visiting their city. And then you feel a little awkward selling to people sometime, even though that is an important part of running a company, right? Yeah. You know, sales is a, is a tricky thing. Pretty much everyone has, has uh, some sort of uh, preconceived notions around what it means to sell and, and, I can I can totally understand how you'd feel like that might be something a little bit sticky to be like, oh, you know, we're good friends, but I need you to buy this from me right now. Can you cut me a check? Yeah. Well, so I'll add a caveat to what I just said, which is that, you know, when I go into stores, even before knowing people, so much of building the relationship is just talking about, you know, many topics besides the games that I'm working on. Obviously, I go in and I meet at their counter or their table and I show them what we have. But, you know, that meeting might also be about how things are going in their store or sometimes I'll get a tour around the store or just chatting about Gamma, perhaps, you know, and they'll I mean, all, they'll bring up all different topics. Usually, I mean, they're industry or store related. But my point is to say that another piece of advice I've shared in interviews like this and just in conversations with people one on one is it's really important to you know make sure part of your interaction in a store is not just about your games or what you have to offer. It's also just learning from them and, and ideally if, if one can remember and not be too nervous about it to let people guide the conversation a bit too. Having a regular conversation where you can just kind of, you know, talk about, I want to say talk about the weather, but like talk about common threads, right? Common things between the two of you that don't necessarily involve a transaction. That's a, a, a totally viable way to create a, a, a real life connection and it can very much lead into a sale or it might not. And it might lead to one later. You know, it's, it's all good. Right. 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 And I want to emphasize because I was thinking about it in relation to a story about a South African retailer. I want to share that sometimes also the relationship building as far as a friendship does also come after you've made a sale to like, after you've worked together a bit, you know, you might end up having times at Gamma where you just spend an hour talking about unrelated topics to your games or the industry even you know, or vaguely related topics. And so, you know, I guess what I'm saying here is look at how friendships develop and, and it's helpful to view relationships with your retailers or other colleagues that way too. And it's an industry where I think it's okay to be vulnerable. I was just sharing that with my parents earlier today. I think this is a, an industry where it's okay to be open about, you know, not about everything, but it's just about things going on in your life besides games sometimes too. So I do want to mention in the context of getting into other countries, through connections I've made at Gamma, through meeting retailers at the bar, you know, I often feel like we internalize 
stories. I feel like I've, I've learned this that we can learn things best through story rather than, you know, just data or the fact being stated. And so I want to mention one other very brief story that um, is related to getting into South Africa. So just, I'm going to take us back for a moment, Tom and any other, you know, listeners who are um, joining us later. I want to briefly take us back to Gamma of 2019. So again, this is March, always it's in March uh, for the expo. I was at the, you know, the, the main circular bar with the white couches and somehow I met this South African retailer. I think he might have been at the actual exhibit hall earlier. I'm not sure. But we met up on the couches perhaps and I showed him our game Wing It. He was Wing It specifically. And we didn't get into South Africa right away, even though we had a connection to a distributor there called Solar Pop. Not a direct one, but through our consolidator, Hit Point Sales. Um, we didn't approach Hit Point Sales at that point about getting in. I'm not actually sure why. But that was March that we talked for a little while. I got to know Bradley, who is a manager at the store in South Africa that he mm -hmm. was literally flying to Reno from, you know, it's pretty wild. So flash forward to Gen Con in August and Solar Pop, the distributor, had a couple, at least a couple people there who showed up at my booth. Bradley, the retailer from South Africa, made sure that they stopped by my booth at Gen Con, which I was actually sharing with another retail or another publisher. So I don't even think that booth was under my name. So they stopped by our booth at Gen Con and, you know, looked at our games. And I think that's where they decided to carry them. Now, it turns out I found out this gamma a couple years later, you know, they're not necessarily bringing enough for, for the store where Bradley is a manager. So we need to get another way to go to South Africa as well, which we have. We have now figured out a way to do that. But the point kind of being like a night at gamma at the bar in March led five months later to more, I would say, of a, you know, an example of closing the deal with a distributor that August, you know, and that, of course, led to some emails back and forth with our consolidator. But you can see how much it matters to just have that personal connections of showing off your game late at night, because that's exactly what we did. And that's how we got into another English speaking country, which is important since our games use so much of the English language. So again, same takeaway, you know, just get to know people as people and then, you know, relationships will grow. Bradley and the owner of that store actually came to, they came to Gamma virtually, you know, over the really cool, um, it's sort of uh, spatial, yeah, spatial chat, the software that we're, actually I met you recently, Tom. They came to that and I spent a lot of time with those two, just chatting. In fact, for the first time I met her, I think it was, her name is Andrea, she was saying she was starstruck, which was really cute. Um, and I got to know her a bit, I got to know Bradley better. And again, we just kind of spent a lot of time in groups chilling and talking. And so to me, that's another example of just how you get to know people, you know, beyond their role as a retailer. You get to, again, just spend time together. So just so everybody knows, Gamma will now be doing spatial chat meetups of some kind quarterly. So if you are a publisher and you're listening, please be sure to stop by the bar, you know, later this year and get to know people. It's obviously much more affordable than showing up in Reno. No hotel, no flight, right? No extra food cost. So please do come to that later this year and, and keep an eye on gamma.org for how to get involved. By the way, I don't work for Gamma. I do volunteer with a couple teams there, the diversity committee and the education committee. So I don't want people to think I'm, I'm you know, spouting off this as a way of broadcasting my employer or anything. It's just that I'm a big fan of Gamma and the way that it, you know, allows people to connect so easily. Yeah, 100%. And it's a bit of a cliche, but like the, the, the saying goes, you know, your network is your net worth. And the idea that, 
the connections that you create, like it, it's an exponential growth, right? Like, you know, one person, then those people know six people and those, those people know six people. And you know, you're, was it the seven degrees away from uh, knowing every single person on the planet, give or take. So the more people that you connect with, the more people that they know who can connect you with the right people that you need to get in front of and then can show you, you know, can, uh, can help you out and, and you can help them out. Right. So it makes a lot of sense and shout out to Brad cause, uh, he was, uh, talking with you at the time that I was talking with you. And, uh, he was one of the, I remember him from showing up at the summit because he, I think he's the only one I've ever seen out of South Africa. Who's, uh, who's running a, a store and putting in the work and that kind of thing. So uh, he's doing a good job <laughs> and he's uh, yeah. obviously participating well. So Brad, if you're listening, I, I'll, I'll try to get him to listen actually. Brad, if you're listening, you're how I got into South Africa so easily. So thank you. <laughs> so on that topic, was South Africa, one of the stores that you managed to visit, or is that like some future? Uh, oh no, definitely country? not. It's it's definitely too far and would be too expensive to go to. But I was able to make it to the UK Games Expo. That was the furthest. That was the farthest location I have gone to was the UK because of UK Games Expo. I surrounded that trip with store visits before and after the expo there. Yeah, like many uh, many retailers, they do the same thing when they go on vacation. It's a tour of the local game stores, and I am uh, guilty of that myself. So, I yeah. have not gone and seen as many as you have. Two hundred seventy-five is a lot of stores. So, I think this is a good segue to go into uh, you know the other the other overall topic, the other overall segment of over the course of visiting so many retailers and so mm -hmm. many different game store operations and you know, so many different continents, right? You've seen obviously a lot of different ways of getting things done. So I wanted to kind of explore some of the common threads amongst the most successful or uh, uh, successful is kind of a nebulous term, but some of the best game stores that you visited, what did they share that you think uh, retailers should know or would benefit from knowing? Sure. I would love to dive into that. And it is it is a big topic. So I, I came up with a few, you know, main common threads that I want to focus on. Of course, I'm, I won't cover it all. And, you know, I also want to just put front and center that, you know, since I'm not a retailer, this is very much coming just from my observations as a publisher and as a customer of many a game store. I often will, you know, purchase games at my, my stores. So I, I will always give myself, I will usually try to give myself a little tour around the game store, even if they don't give me a, a tour themselves. And I'm only offering for people who are running game stores, especially if I work with you, that caveat, just so I say, you know, front and center, I'm not an expert. And you know that I'm not trying to be an expert, but that I do know a, a fair amount of what makes a successful game store just because I've done a lot of visits and demos at stores. Okay, so let's start out with one of my favorite ones. I really believe that gaming builds community, right? We all, I think in the industry, acknowledge that and are really aware of that. In fact, that's part of our our company's DNA. We, we love that aspect of creating games. And even though it wasn't why I went into this industry, I will just put out there front and center that it's become a, you know, big, big factor of what drives me and big thing that I care about. And game stores clearly share that as well. So... Building community is something that the most successful game stores just appear, you know, at a surface level to do very well, as I've said. Specifically, what does that look like? Well, 
It looks like having regular game nights, having game nights for specific audiences. So, for example, there'll be on many, you know, board game store calendars, a board game night, which is funny to me, right? You, when I would have entered, when I entered the industry, I would have thought that maybe every night would be a board game night. And there are stores you can stop in every night, but there are also many a store with a designated board game night because they also have a Warhammer 40k night. They also have many magic nights, right? And so I think building community around specific sub-communities within the broader gaming culture and community of gamers is really important. And I think that helps create a regular place gamers go to for their entertainment, right? As one game store owner has, has wisely pointed out, his competition, it was a man in this case, he, his competition includes movie theaters, right? It includes Netflix, you know? Anything people can stay at home and do for entertainment for a couple hours. But a game store offers something that a movie night and even to some extent a bar and to a huge extent, you know, staying home and watching Netflix cannot offer, which is a sense of regular community around a strong shared interest. And I want to have enough humility to point out that I'm saying something a lot of people will know. So this is mostly either for newer publishers or for people thinking about founding a game store that it is so important to have regular game nights and have them ideally be, I mean, from what I've seen, ideally themed around a certain kind of gaming, you know, game or gaming subculture. So the reason I can say that from a, you know, again, I'll tell a story from personal experience is that I've had some pretty successful to, you know, in one case, a very successful game night because of the fact that there's a regular group and in one case, because they even had an outside person, I mean, outside from the staff, like a, a customer or customers organizing the game night. So for example, when I was in Rochester, New York at Millennium Games, that's Travis Millennium or Travis Severance's store, that was one of my biggest game nights ever by, by a lot. We probably had, gosh, I mean, 20 or 30 people during the night. It felt, felt more like 30, could have been like 25 people at three different tables actually over the course of the night playing Wing It and Wing It Beyond and one big round of the Million Dollar Doodle, which is our, our third game that came out last year, even though it wasn't produced, manufactured yet, last sep uh, no, last January, oh, that's so weird, a little over a year ago, when I traveled up from New York City to Vermont and then on through Canada, I did a trip around basically the Toronto, no, the Montreal stores, then over the Toronto stores, and then back down into the US and hit Northern New York. And when I went to Rochester, I definitely hit Travis's store. It's one of the most, as far as I know, success, most successful stores nationally. He had had both a staff person and a customer organize a pretty good size game night. It seems like a regular thing on Thursdays that I think that where they actually feature publishers too. And so I got to go be part of that. And that was really successful, I think, not just because he has regular groups coming and they have a regular, you know, gaming group, but also because, you know, he has customers themselves bringing other customers in. So that's just one model that I've seen. And again, nothing I say, well, I don't think I made this clear earlier, so I'm going to make it clear, very clear now. Nothing I say has to be done, right, to make a successful game store. There's no one way to be a successful game store. But all of these factors are really helpful in building your success. Because if people are regularly coming into your store, they're also regularly, ideally, they're buying things too. Maybe they're buying just a snack if you have food to offer, but they're also going to know that, you know, to keep the doors open, they need to buy games as well. 
And, you know, if they're having a magic night, they're regular, they're probably buying, you know, their new magic cards from your store as well, of course. Okay, so I want to I actually move on from that part of it, but just to pause for a moment. Do you have anything to build on that or any other questions related to that part of building community through through the game nights? Uh, I agree. <laughs> that Simply put, I, I think that's 100% the truth. I think that the idea of the community is one of the fundamental things that differentiates differentiates a game store from another retail location. Mm -hmm. Like Toys R Us sells games, but no one's going to Toys R Us to, to find new games, find new people to play with. They're not, that's not the reason they come in and they leave. And there's a reason why I feel like there's a reason why Toys R Us is basically going extinct. And it's because that model is not like for the game section. That's not how it works. I don't think you can have games. And like I've, I've advocated for, uh, uh, with Magic, the idea of being that the game wouldn't exist if it weren't for game stores. Mm -hmm. like if the way the Wizards is doing things, the, as big as Magic is, it would, be, it would almost not exist if it weren't so heavily supported by an infrastructure of game stores all over the world providing that community to, to make it what it is. If they all disappeared overnight, Magic would basically go the same way. It would be gone. Or it would be very vastly diminished. Uh, they might, the things might be changing now that it's kind of like shifting towards digital. But generally speaking, the physical side, the, the interaction of peop with people, that's the reason why the games work. And I think that's pretty much the same for most uh, like collectible card games or trading games, uh, Dungeons and Dragons, all of the stuff that kind of you know, fits in the sandbox. All of that applies to the idea of if there is no community, there's no, there's no sales. I feel like you have to have some sort of a gathering. And I know it's really hard right now because of COVID and all that. Sure. But creating that is a really important uh, point. And how you go about doing that, and again, like you mentioned, it's not, uh, uh, this is not something that every single game store has to do in order to be successful. And it doesn't guarantee success. And like, there's a lot of ways of going about doing it. But this is certainly one good principle one good angle going towards it uh, mm -hmm. yeah so I, I i definitely agree with that and are you saying tom that magic wouldn't exist in its current form or just any kind of you know well my, my personal experience is, is more deeply with magic i know that uh the uh the friends the, the friendships that i formed because of magic because i was able to connect with them none of those would have occurred if i had not had a place to go to find those people so the my belief is that the game and the sales and the revenue and wizards of the coast and all of the employees that are involved in the creation of the game, I don't think they would be able to do what they're doing right now if it weren't for this layer of retailers, this layer of, of game store owners who are creating this community space in order to facilitate the game. And I feel like they're uh, symbiotic, that the community and magic are, are co-joined and they need to be there and if it doesn't exist, then like the game itself is is pretty much done as well. I don't. I think it would have gone the way that uh, several other card games have kind of uh, declined over the years. Sure, sure. And you know, I don't know if you did this intentionally or subconsciously. I think it was subconscious, but I, I smiled because you had I thought been talking about Magic: The Gathering, and then you mentioned, you know, if people weren't gathering like this, it wouldn't exist. It's true that if people aren't gathering, it's hard to have Magic: The Gathering, right? <laughs> That is true. The gathering is pretty much a uh, a crucial point of it, and it's built right into the name. You know, it's not much without the gathering. Exactly. But, uh, yeah, yeah, that was well, a Freudian slip, I suppose. <laughs> no, it was perfect. It was it was a it was a cute connection there. So I wanted to point it out. 
Well, and this point about building community around different types of gamers, you know, people who are into board games and people are into trading card games and specifically magic. Dungeons and Dragons, of course, there are a lot of game stores with Dungeons and Dragons Knights. Relates to another point I wanted to bring up that I hadn't actually thought as much about earlier for, for this particular show, which is that welcoming all types of gamers is another is, is another way of saying that we also want to welcome all types of people. So whether that's people who have other types of abilities, maybe, you know, people who are in a wheelchair, you want to make sure your game space is accessible, or that at least one of your game spaces is accessible, right? Or welcoming people with different, you know, um, uh, I forget what the word is, but different abilities as far as, um, I think it's called neurodivergent, just with, with different, um, you know, neurological tendencies. I don't know if I'm using the right term, so apologies if I'm, um, if I'm showing my own ignorance here. But I, you know, I, I did some revisions on a presentation that my friend Dave Salisbury did. He's the retailer I mentioned from the UK, and he had done a presentation. Fanboy huh? Fanboy 3. Fanboy 3, yep. He owns Fanboy 3 in Manchester, UK, for anyone listening. That's his, his good store. So Dave has created a really welcoming space, and his, you know, his staff has created a welcoming space along with him because he's worked at, at coding his store for all different types of people. Now, I had, I had never heard the term of coding a store before, coding a convention to be more welcoming, but this is a really awesome idea, so I wanna be sure to flag it. I, I had been revising his presentation, as I mentioned, that he gave at Gamma, oh, about just over two weeks ago, and he used the word neurodivergent. I realized, oh, he's saying he, know, he wants to make sure people with autism feel welcome in the store. People with different social you know, abilities feel welcome in the store. And also people of different ethnic backgrounds, people of different economic backgrounds feel welcome in the store. So he made sure, for example, to, you know, to, to cater to the needs of his players who wanted to play Yu-Gi-Oh. Is it Yu-Gi-Oh or Yu-Gi-Oh? Uh, I believe it is Yu-Gi-Oh. Yu-Gi-Oh, that's right. Yeah. So he, he had found that he had a group of young people who really wanted to play Yu-Gi-Oh. Now, some retailers, and I'm sure others in the industry, kind of give Yu-Gi-Oh a, a you know, they, they, they give it a bad name or feel like it gives itself a bad name or sort of knock it. And I don't, I don't know enough about the depths of that, but I will just say that he had a group of people who, you know, were not all necessarily native-born people in Britain. They were coming from different immigrant communities, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly. And the main point there is that they felt like, you know, one of the things that they connected over, the, the main game they connected over was Yu-Gi-Oh! So he needed to make sure to provide some space for that group. And another, another way that people talk about making their store more welcoming is to make sure people of different genders feel welcome. You know, Dave wanted to make sure that his store felt welcome to people who were LGBTQ, so that's both around gender and sexuality. He realized that he needed to make it more explicitly welcoming, so he took steps to do so. But also, you'll hear, you know, women who are game store owners, which are definitely a, a big minority of game store owners, you'll, you'll hear them talk about in presentations at Gamma, for instance, which I've attended, talking about how to make sure your space has women in it or have women staff and have women playing so that women feel welcome. And I, I want to make the same suggestion, you know, piggybacking off of their point that it's important to have, if you can, you know, find people who are non-binary staff to, you know, hire non-binary staff, hire people um, who identify as, as trans or non-gender conforming. And to also, I mean, even if you can't do that, especially maybe in a, you know, a smaller town where there aren't as many people applying for jobs, period, you know, to make sure that your space is welcoming for people of all genders 
in your in your gaming area. I I obviously am erring on the side of you know the more liberal end of the spectrum in the gaming community, but I think everyone can agree that this is not only a way to be welcoming and show you know show warm towards people of all different backgrounds, you know whether it's nationality or gender or sexuality or or any other <clears throat> trait, but to also just point out that this is a good business model. You're literally expanding the market right by making your store more welcoming you might end up accidentally excluding a few people who don't feel comfortable around people of different genders but i'm guessing that they'll still probably come to your store to, to play if they want to play there and i'll just put out there that you know it's a very good business decision to welcome everybody you can and you have to take specific steps to make your space welcoming either making signage explicit or making sure that you know people feel like their needs are met in a store when they're not treated well. I know that, and it wasn't over a specific incident, but I know that Dave has talked about, again, this is Dave Salisbury, I'm gonna be bringing him up a lot. Dave Salisbury talked in his presentation about how to code your store, about how many young people he had sat down with, young adults he'd sat down with, and just helped with issues in their lives, you know, help talk through problems. Now, not everybody is going to be Dave Salisbury working on mental health issues in his store. He has a designated program for that called Roll With It. You can look at Roll With It and Dave Salisbury if you want to learn about that. But, you know, you can make sure that when something happens or when you see someone looking uncomfortable, that you talk to them directly and talk to them maybe quietly to the side and say, how how do we build this store in a way that will make it more welcoming for you? How can we make sure the, the, the community is welcoming for you? So just being explicit about being welcoming is important. You can say you're welcoming or say you welcome people of all backgrounds, but actually taking the extra step and doing some of what we call in this kind of work, emotional labor of, of figuring out how to be welcoming is important. And that's all I'm gonna say about that for now. I feel like I'm emphasizing that point a lot, but I just wanna make sure, you know, gamers of all backgrounds feeling welcome in a store is a common thread I've seen among, you know, certain successful stores at least. No, I agree with that. And there's, while you were talking about it, there was two things that were going through my mind. And the first is that, yes, you know, obviously if you can expand your customer base, that's great, right? Like the more people that you can bring into the fold and, and sell to, you know, the, the more successful your business will be. That's not, obviously you don't want to say, I, I don't want to sell to this vast section of the population. I just want to sell this little tiny one. Like why would you voluntarily hamstring yourself to do that? Mm -hmm. So you know, obviously open the doors because this isn't a uh, private club. But then the other thing was that, uh, uh, I can't remember where I originally read it, but I believe it was in an article at some point. But uh, it was a story of uh, somebody, again, like most of my experiences go back to magic. Uh, it was a story of somebody who uh, went to, I believe it was Japan, and they were on a bus. And it was like a long bus ride, and they they whip, they had a, a, their magic deck with them because they were you know magic players. And they were playing with it, or they were shuffling it up, or they were looking at it, and then moving some cards around or something like that. And somebody across the aisle was like, someone who didn't speak English saw the, the deck and like kind of you know connected with them and said, okay, yeah. And they brought out their magic cards. And they were able to play a game on that bus, despite the fact that neither of them actually spoke the same language. Wow, that's so like so they cool. were able to connect as magic players. Like, I know exactly what you're doing. I, you know, we, we play the same cards. You, know, you know, if they're both standard or both legacy or whatever, uh, you can identify what they are just by looking at the art. You can usually figure out what the other person is trying to do by just, you know, I'm going to point to this. I'm going to point to that. You know, and then the game works itself out, and you can actually create a relationship with somebody without having to be able to even know their name, not properly anyways, at least in the case of uh, Japanese English, that can be a challenge. Uh, 
but that's what games do. The game is like not just magic, board games and uh, games of all types allow you to create a connection with somebody on a completely level playing field most of the time. And it's a way to create those horizontal bonds and that just probably don't exist anywhere else, right? Like, you, where, you know, like other than the bar, and the bar is kind of like not a great example, but it's probably the closest analogy. Where could you have like a CEO of a multinational corporation sit down against a like 12 year old and play a game where the 12 year old can beat them, you know, if they're playing at an FNM or something like that? And, you know, it could be from different parts of the planet, could have completely different educational backgrounds, uh, totally different family life, like, but they could become, you know, maybe friends, maybe acquaintances, like there's, those connections just don't exist anywhere else. And I think that's, uh, if, if you can make it so that your store can facilitate that, that that's obviously a great thing. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Now, on that bus, was it, uh, I'd miss this if you said it, was it an American and a Japanese person? I believe so. I believe okay. so. That's really neat. Actually, just as a side note, because it's an interesting, you know, uh, connection here. Last year, I actually met a retailer from Japan. I don't think he was Japanese, but he runs a store on an island off the coast of Japan. There happens to be a U.S. military base there. So it's a pretty good audience at the military base. And I thought that was really cool that someone flew from Japan, you know, to come to Gamma. I mean, I'm sure he, you know, mixed up the trip with something else, but that was still really neat. Well, an example of what you just said, I actually, while you were just sharing that story, I pulled up a quote here that I wanted to share, is when our graphic designer, rather one of our graphic designers, cousins played Wing It with people from other backgrounds. So again, Wing It is our first game, the game of extreme storytelling. Wing It Beyond, the standalone sci-fi expansion being the second one. And the quote is from our graphic designer describing, this was just a, a text to John, my co-founder and I, she was describing what she heard from her cousin after he played Wing It at his community college, okay? So this is what she wrote us. Oh, an important background is that she is a Korean Uzbekistani American immigrant. I believe what, she was actually a refugee too. So she's Korean, but she, I mean, she's Korean American, but she had come through Uzbekistan at some point. So I, I have a complicated way of describing her background. <laughs> All right, so and Yulia Kim is her name. All right, here's what she wrote us. Also guys, this is so touching, but my cousin who came to the States a couple years ago took wing it to his conversation club, which is a group for international students <clears throat> at his community college. And they played the game for hours. He said that it was so much fun that even when they were kicked out of the room, they went somewhere else to play the game somewhere else. And he said that it was his first time getting really close to people and making friends. So there you go. A, a great quote that I love. I love using. I love talking about because it's a, it's a perfect example, right? Of people from all different nationalities since they're at a conversation club, you know, building a friendship, building friendships more deeply at least through a game night. And there is, there are few things more gratifying than hearing about one of your games, you know, being a vehicle for that kind of relationship building and deepening. So just to piggyback. Exactly. Case closed, bam. Case closed, drop the mic, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> I don't have a mic, but I'll metaphorically drop one. Yeah. Anyway, I, I don't like it to sound like a bragging point, but just it's a really touching story to share. So I do like to want to, you know, I like to share it. I wanted to bring it in. And it goes to the point, you know, if you can make your, your store more welcoming to a wider range of people, you're more likely to create those kinds of situations, those, those kinds of experiences. Definitely. And actually, Tom, I want to build on the, the second point that I gave earlier about how to code your store. It, this isn't always easy. I heard from a retailer in Reno who I spent a lot of time with, particularly at this gamma late at night. We were still in some of the rooms at the at the virtual trade show that his community, for example, in Reno doesn't have a lot of people of diverse backgrounds coming to his store. So it sounds like there is a pretty big Latino community. But for example, when people line up outside the store for a certain product and there's a huge line of 50 people, maybe one or two of them will be you know, black or Latino, but almost everybody running up outside the store is white. So I don't remember if I mentioned this to him or not, but one piece of advice I have for people, and you know, this won't be something totally new to certain publishers or retailers, but this is what I think of as good advice for myself to take and for any publishers and retailers to, you know, to try to figure out how to apply is to actually go out into the community and you know, create gamers out of people in diverse parts of your community. So what I mean by that is to do something similar to what Pat Fuge does. Pat Fuge will be delighted, I'm sure, that I'm bringing him up on this show. Pat actually goes out to, to schools a lot in his community and leads game nights. And the one time I did this, it happened to be at a store in Queens that was mostly Black and Latino students. It wasn't necessarily intentional that I went to you know, a diverse school of, of mostly minority students, but I happen to have a friend who founded and run, ran, founded and runs this school in Queens. So I went out there, I talked about being a board game entrepreneur, starting my company, and then we played both Wing It and Snake Oil at the time. So they got introduced to some games and, you know, I don't know if we made any sales from it. We may not have made sales actually, but that wasn't necessarily the point. The point was just to introduce entrepreneurship and games to this crowd of students. And I mentioned Pat going to the community and myself in this one store as a way to do this strategy more broadly, to take this to heart and say, let's go into stores in the inner city that will be largely black. Let's go out to stores that are, you know, high percentage Asian American or, you know, Hispanic American, Latinx American, depending on your preferred term. And let's hold game, you know, game club afternoons. Let's do game nights. So I guess that's a way that people can diversify their customer base in the long term by letting those folks know, hey, by the way, we have a weekly game night at the store. You're welcome to come. Another suggestion I made to this retailer in Gamma was to look up black churches in Reno. I actually looked up, you know, just black churches in his area and, you know, found various listings just on you know, Google Maps and to actually call local congregations in your area. You could go to a Hebrew Israelite congregation, which is you know, mostly black Jewish community and an offer to do game night. So just diversifying your store can be a matter of doing the, you know, the hard work, but, but really rewarding and I'm sure very fun work of community outreach as well. And that's a way just to let people know your store even exists. I was into games for years before becoming a game designer, but I didn't know board game stores were a thing. I had no idea. So it helps to go out and tell people these stores exist, right? So that's another specific suggestion I had just to diversify who you, who's coming into your store. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. The, uh, when you're inside the, when you're in the sandbox, it's really easy to think that 
well, everybody knows about all these board games. Everybody knows how this works, and it's hard to, you know, uh, get out of your fishbowl for a little bit. Uh, but yes, it's it's. Uh, I definitely agree. That is one of the things that I have seen in interviewing a lot of game store owners is that the uh, some of the most successful in the sense that they've created a really uh, profitable business, but also a really connected community and a lot of people who like they care about and who care about them, like that kind of a relationship. Uh, they do that through actual outreach. Like they'll, like you said, they'll go to the, the schools in the area and they'll uh, either set up some sort of a, uh, a program or club or something along those lines and kind of taking the community from, you know, their four walls and expanding it outwards and, and pushing it, not just the people who happen to find you and come in your door and then you make them welcome that, you know, you should hundred percent do that, but you can go out and do it too. You can go out there and meet them where they are and let them know what you're doing. It's, uh, <laughs> it's something that more retailers should probably consider. Even if it's not you, you know, you don't have to physically necessarily go visit the place. You can hook things up via phone call. Uh, but putting in a little bit of legwork in that sense and uh, creating those connections outside of your business and outside of your industry, uh, humongously valuable. Mm -hmm. Oh, definitely. And maybe you do it once a month or maybe you have a staff person do it once a month. Maybe you ask a particularly enthusiastic customer to go out and do it once a month, right? So it's yeah. hard for a sole proprietor you know, of a, of a business, of a store to do this, but there are maybe other ways to make it work or to make it work occasionally. And as someone who's now creating a Jewish culture game and creating a humorous culture game based on black card revoked. Ours is called Jewish card revoked. I will just say that I have found that there are some stores I'm surprised are connected to their local Jewish communities. And because of that, they'll be able to sell my game. Whereas a lot of stores won't be able to sell that particular game or won't be able to, won't necessarily want to sell it because they don't necessarily know if they can sell that many, if they are not deeply connected to a Jewish community or if there just isn't one in their area. Right. But I was intrigued to hear that, our store, our retail partner, Crazy Squirrel Game Store out in Fresno, California, is pretty connected to the Jewish community in Fresno, California. I didn't know that there was one out there. And it was also not as surprising, but really neat to hear that a game store owner, Laura Schneider, at Meet actually does events with Bottom Bar Mitzvah kids. And she brings Wing It. And she said it's hard to get them to place something besides Wing It, which, again, was like really touching and kind of gratifying to hear. But also it means that she has people who know about her store who are Jewish who would probably be interested in a Jewish culture game. So that's another thing is once you are also attracting a diverse customer base, it could help you sell a game like Black Card Revoked or Jewish Card Revoked or Latino Card Revoked they also have and Gay Card Revoked. So, you know, it diversifies your games as well if you are able to, to sell games to more people of more backgrounds. As the longest we or the longer we have talked, it feels like this is a uh, a all stars name drop of people who've been on the podcast in the past. Like I know all these people. I've talked to all of them at some point in the few, in the uh, the last few years. Uh, That's funny. Well, small I, world. Sure, and Tom. I, well, I will hope I will hope that enough new retailers or newer retailers or maybe retailers who aren't doing all of these things already will listen in because. I want people to find something useful out of the podcast today. And I was a little nervous because you've talked to so many retailers that maybe I wouldn't necessarily be able to offer anything new to folks, but hopefully newer retailers will listen in as well. And, and, you know, maybe even hear some tips. Well, there's, there's no harm in going over some old wisdom, even if you've heard it before, it's, it's always good to get a refresher. And uh, yes, I definitely hope one of the things that I would 
like to do, and it's hard to do because it's almost impossible to reach people in this kind of situation, but if you're a new retailer or if you're somebody who's like, I think I want to open a game store, and you're, you're in the planning stages, getting in front of them and kind of like, okay, don't make any of these mistakes, do all these things, you know, like trying to help them avoid some of the pitfalls because there's, you know, pitfalls with any new business, but there's a lot of ways to screw up a game store and that can really mess up your life. So those are the people I'd like to help the most, uh, ideally. You know, I'd like to help people who are established and, you know, take things to the next level or uh, turn things around or whatever the case may be, but especially the people who are kind of like just, just getting in and just getting invested and, you know, if you're going to put down fifty dollars to $100,000 on a business idea, like, I, you know, I applaud you, and I would like to help if I can, and uh, maybe, you know, humbly point you in a good direction, hopefully. That's great, Tom. I like that you do that. Oh, that's what I try. I try. <laughs> well, before we stray into another topic, actually, I should ask, do you have any other questions related to what I described? I don't think so. Not right now, anyways. No, that's great. I... I didn't know if you were going to jump to something new, so I wanted to just mention that in terms of diversifying your games and, you know, your base of customers, your customer base in the store, I just thought of this idea. It's also a good idea, especially while, you know, there are still virtual events happening, to invite diverse publishers to come to game nights, maybe even on Discord. I mean, obviously, if they're in a nearby city or in your town, they could come, you know, directly in person once you know, more in-person game nights are happening, but I think, you know, only a small number of stores are probably doing in-person game nights at this point. So while you're able to, why not bring in the person who, per person or maybe people who published Rhyme Antics, for example. Chantel is the publisher of Rhyme Antics, and that's a really neat hip-hop game. She is one of the few Black women I've met in game publishing. So that's an example of a publisher. She's a great example of a publisher you could bring in, and she's also just really animated and cool. And uh, I don't know that a ton of any stores carry her game, although she is in Target, which is huge. And then, you know, also looking into who are the publishers of Black Wall Street, for instance. That's another game that I haven't seen at stores, but, you know, you could bring in the publisher and then get people interested and maybe even partner with leaders or groups in the local Black community to, you know, to introduce publishers to your, you know, to customers at your store or, or new potential customers. So that's another idea I have. Um, I'm sure people know, but just in case anyone doesn't, Elizabeth Hargrave. Elizabeth Hargrave is, I'm sure people know the, the publisher, or not the publisher. Elizabeth Hargrave is the designer of Wingspan. And she has her own website with a list of black designers. And I believe black publishers as well. And there's also a list of women and non-binary designers and publishers. So you can use her list to reach out to people and ask people if they want to come and talk about their games. That's a tip that maybe hasn't come up on your podcast before because you know no, no that's an interesting idea though i like the any way of getting new games obviously the publishers would like to get their games in front of new customers that's a you know no-brainer so the idea of having retailers do a publisher hosted game night i think is a really interesting idea how my as a person thinking about it from the other side of things what do you think the odds are of publishers being open to the idea of investing that kind of time for any, like a particular retailer? I think the odds are pretty high, especially right now for especially smaller publishers. But, you know, in general, even a publisher who's had the success of, you know, the woman who published Rymantics, I think that this is still appealing because you get so few chances now to do demo nights 
and expanding the customer base to be more diverse at a game store and expanding the diversity of publishers represented at your game store are both appealing propositions for people, you know, on both ends of that relationship. So I don't think it would be a, a question even. I think it would be pretty easy. I am Molly, who from who runs Flying Leap Games, and I will personally offer to reach out to publishers on behalf of game stores if they want support and just, you know, making the personal connection to some publishers I know. I actually got in touch with Brilliant or BS, well, the company and the people who made the game, Brilliant or BS, that's Camelia Weathers and her husband, Nick. She's the one who made the game, but he also works for the company. I got in touch with them over Instagram because I was featuring black designers and, and black publishers, and I ended up having a lot to learn from them. They wanted to learn about, you know, how to get into retail for me, and they actually ended up coming to Gamma this year for their first time. Well, they're examples of people who have had a lot of success with their first game, but they weren't they haven't been in a lot of retail stores yet. And, you know, that's a way that Gamma is a platform for connecting, you know, more diverse array of publishers to designers as well. So just another another thought there is, um, I mean, obviously people know to attend Gamma, but, you know, ask the people you meet at Gamma to come do game nights and just see what they say. I mentioned diversity of the game store and diversity of types of gamers and having diverse types of game nights. I also realized in describing some of those topics early on, that I wanted to make sure to mention a topic that came up for me the last day or so when I was you know, just mentally preparing for this interview, um, that it's important to also make sure your store itself has diverse offerings in fairly high percentages. So this isn't a new idea because I did some digging into your old blog post and saw this idea has come up before, but I can't emphasize it enough and just want to make sure it's you know included here too, just in case people don't get to the blog post or or other interviews you've done, that it's so important to make sure you're carrying a fair amount of board games, you know, that you go pretty deep into different areas. Like I've seen a, a lot of stores that might have one or two of each type of game. That's fine. I mean, again, there are many ways to be successful, but this is something I'm getting partly just from seeing some of the bigger stores out there and what they offer. And honestly, I'm getting it mostly, just to be totally frank, mostly from discussions I've seen among retailers about how dependent certain stores are on trading cards, for instance. There are some trading card stores that I visit and I know when I'm inside that they'll probably order, you know, one to four copies of Wing It. That's okay, that's fine. I mean, I need those stores to be part of my network too, in addition to stores buying six or 12 or, or even 24, you know, uh, units of a game or, or games overall. But but it's it's, while it's important for me as a publisher to have those connections, it's also important for those retailers to, to know that sometimes, you know, the market might not be as good, right? And I think people do know that and people could see when the market hasn't been good. Oh, it's really good not to be dependent on this. I have heard of stores through the grapevine. I don't want to like, act like I'm the person who's the expert on this because I'm not. I'm just getting this, I'm, again, getting this information from retailers. I've heard of stores that might be even, say, 70% trading cards in terms of, I think, sales, not, not inventory. And... I've heard someone who's a successful retailer in my network, and I'm not going to mention it just because I don't want people to, you know, judge this particular person's success, but he has told me that he, I think, is roughly like 25% in four different categories, one of them being board games. And I'll just put out there, I'm not trying to just, you know, promote board games because I'm a game designer and publisher. Obviously, I want people to carry more board games for sure, but it does help expand your customer base. And also, it means that if one category is suffering, if one category isn't as valuable at a given time or as popular at a given time, then it's good to be big in that category. 
So again, an obvious point if anybody is carrying Pokemon right now, congratulations, because I know that has been huge and doing really well. And it's definitely a great time for certain kinds of trading cards. I'm not sure about all of them, but certain kinds. So I know that there are times when you really want to have more trading cards as part of as a bigger part of your sales. And that's great. You know, at this time, having a nice bigger proportion of your revenue and with as valuable as they are makes a lot of sense. But again, I want to say with with humility, I still as a, a publisher, not a retailer, that it's just so important to diversify your offerings. Again, I feel like I'm probably going to say this a lot. I agree. <laughs> the idea yeah. of diversification is obviously really important. I think it's like a, a good way to think about it is, you know, like an investment portfolio. Mm-hmm. Like so not everything's going to do well all the time. Some things there, there's going to be a roller coaster and up and down and you don't want all your eggs in one basket and have that thing just crash to the ground. Right. Cause like Pokemon's doing great now, but what happens in six to 12 months from now when maybe it's not doing so great. And if you, that's, like if that's 70% of your sales, like somehow if that's the case, then that 70% is gone now, right? Then what mm-hmm. do you do, right? Whereas if it's only 10, 15, 20% and you've got all the rest of your business uh, in board games and other, you know, offerings, then, okay, that, that goes down, that dips, but that doesn't mean you're, you're out of luck. That doesn't mean like you're a verge on bankruptcy or anything like that, right? Right. You know, like why you have to get off the roller coaster if you want to like make it long term because it could, it, all it takes is one bad for some businesses, all it'll take is one bad month or one bad extended period, like a year, and you know your cash cow suddenly dies, and, and that, that's the end of your business. So you can protect yourself and your business by by doing that, by offering a few more a few more things and expanding what you uh, the kind of customers that you serve. Definitely, and you know I want to mention that this is probably obvious for many retailers, but somewhere between. 20% of your sales for Pokemon or trading cards in general, and 70%, there is a magic number for your store, and you'll know based on your population. Obviously, in cities like Indianapolis or Phoenix or Salt Lake City, there are so many game stores that I understand there's probably a benefit to specializing a little bit in a city like one of those. At the same time, just you know, knowing that more people will come into your store if you have more offerings is clearly an important part of part of doing business. So, and I don't want to you know, retail splain, retail to retailers. <laughs> I feel like that's a, 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 that was a, definitely a risk for today. But I just, again, I learned this from watching retailers post and I have been aware that, you know, with Wizards of the Coast, I think uh, being, you know, the source of, of magic, um, I've been aware that, you know, even depending on one company for a big part of your business could in the long term be a risk, hopefully not. But just because you don't know, it's good to diversify. So just, just so people know, I am the choir in terms of speaking to the choir. I actually found that during the pandemic, part of the reason we've had a tough time financially at times is that we make party games that are for four more people. We only make games for four more people. So I thought about expanding the games for one or two people. I didn't really want to expand to, you know, necessarily two person or, or solo player games, but with the vaccine coming out as soon as it did, as quickly as it did, that good news led me to feel more comfortable developing the two games that I'm coming out with. So the two we have coming out this year are still for four more people. One you could maybe do, you could do it with three. But my, my point kind of being that I understand what it means to not have, you know, a diverse array of types of games. And then to realize with a pandemic hitting, you know, who would have expected it, right? I certainly didn't. That, um, you know, that it definitely made it harder to, to sell to some stores because they were suffering in their sales of party games. So, you know, I... I've been been there. If you've experienced this problem of, of having less diversity of offerings, 
I can empathize, I get it. And I've been in sort of, you know, just a waited out mode. But, um, you know, at the same time in, in December, we also had our biggest sale ever from a Canadian distributor. So it's been sort of up and down in terms of how that's been to have only party games as our offering right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and on that note, I, I, you know, I think that you should have a broad set of offerings, but if you are niched down and you are that kind of a store and you want to be in that store, there's still ways of diversifying within the niche, mm -hmm. right? So you can, you don't want to just be the magic store. Like you, if you're the trading card game store, you can, there's more than one trading card game. Like there's plenty of different, there's the LCGs, there's all kinds of different versions that you can expand on and still essentially do the same sort of uh, expertise and specialization, but still give yourself a little bit of a buffer in that, you know, you're not all relying on a single game and a single product and a single company to take care of your business. Like as great as Wizards is most of the time, there have definitely been uh, periods during the life of Magic the Gathering where it has been terrible. Like oh, just really? the game was terrible. The, the, the sets were terrible. Like it all just fell apart and they, they recovered over time. But like, like I said, you know, one year is, can t feel like forever if you've got that really bad dip in things. But if you're not a hundred percent relying on one game to make it happen, you know, you're not going to suffer as badly as, uh, as you could. So mm -hmm. yeah, like the idea of, of specializing is, is totally viable. There's a, it's, like just look at Star City, right? Star City's it's known for magic. It's pretty much the magic store in the in probably in North America, definitely in the world, probably. And you know, they 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 roll with it. But even them, they've they've got other things going on besides just selling magic cards, right? There's there's other things happening. And I think uh I think learning or taking a page from that book is a good good lesson. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. I'd never heard of Star City, so now I'll probably want to Google them and learn about them. Star City Games? You don't know Star City Games? I don't. I don't. Okay. Well, as a Magic player, you're like, how could you possibly not know Star City Games? But that's that's okay. As a as a board game publisher, that makes that makes sense. Well, I'm not a Magic player, but also, I mean, I'm I'm fairly new to the industry still, right? I mean, I've only been running this company since 2017, and I've never played Magic, so that you know that tells you something about just what I would know. So that that displays my own lack of knowledge. There we go. <laughs> uh, well, now you have someone else to check out. Yeah, actually, I did an interview with uh, with the owner of uh, of Star City a while back, Pete, and uh, yeah, he has a lot of interesting things to talk about because his business is, like I said, it's it's more than just magic. It's uh, it's like a media empire in inside of Magic now. They're they're pretty much the name in terms of uh, content and uh, video and yeah, like all that stuff and like events, right? Like they. Uh, the Star City Games Tour, the open series, mm -hmm. was as big or it was the main competitor to Wizards' own Pro Tour, their own sure. organized play program. They were the other wing, basically. So, uh, yeah. Homework, if you ever want to check it out. That's uh, yeah, a good place to start. I will definitely do that homework. Thank you. I'm going to be Googling them. And what was the name of the person you mentioned again? What was his name? Uh, Pete Hofling. Pete Hofling. Interesting. Okay, cool. Thanks, Tom. See, I learned something today, too. <laughs> so what was the what was the next uh bit of advice we've been kind of circling around those first two we uh right, right. Kind of well, you know i wanted to, to zoom way out and just say something that might seem really obvious to many people and yet because it's so important i feel like it's worth saying the 
common threads among game stores include common threads among game store owners and managers. And what I have noticed is they're just really often warm and welcoming and friendly people. There are a few indie game store owners who are, you know, big and, you know, tough, tough men. And sometimes I get a little bit intimidated. I get intimidated by some of the women game store owners too. And, I, and I'm pretty outgoing. So I thought, well, probably other people are intimidated, but they're really nice, welcoming people still, of course. And I think that that's part of, you know, the answer to a, a final question you had mentioned in, in questions you had shared with me previously about the best way to create relationships in this business. So much of creating relationships is just being warm and welcoming and friendly and, you know, putting yourself out there. I mean, I guess the way that we actually created a relationship was I think we met at Gamma either in my, I don't remember if it was at my booth or in the at the bar, but wherever it was in that room, we just kind of chatted. We'd never met before. And I found out what you do and I thought, oh, well, I visited 275 stores or so, about 250 of which were game stores. So I feel like I have something to offer. And I was a little nervous about that, but then I thought, no, I'm just gonna go for it. So I think that, you know, not to say like I am the example, but I have seen a lot of examples of people in the business and I'll emphasize this a lot, um, more than much more than myself that, you know, just emphasize that, that um, really represent what I'm saying here, that really, um, not to be too emphatic about it, but who really exemplify, that's what I was looking for. A lot of people who really exemplify what it means to just, you know, be that warm and welcoming person, whether to me as a publisher or to customers coming into your store. And I try to, you know, adopt this mentality when I'm demoing in a store, when I'm about to demo or when we're wrapping up a demo, that the customer is always the, the most important person there. So if they have a need, I, I make sure to give the out. You know, if they don't interrupt the conversation themselves as the retailer, if the retailer or the customer does interrupt, I want to be the one to interrupt us. I'll say, oh, you know, go ahead and help them. That's totally fine. I totally get it. You know, please, please help them. I make sure to pause our conversation because that customer is a human being who is in the store to potentially buy something that's really important, especially right now. And, you know, they need to take priority. So, so knowing when to, to step back is really important. And I guess when I'm going into store and I feel really welcomed by the store owners, which is, you know, most of the time, almost all the time, that's, that's a nice feeling. You know, I don't, I don't get so nervous when I go into stores. I mean, I think, you know, a little bit of that nervous energy kicks in, but by and large, I feel really welcome and, and feel like they know how to create the space I'm describing. So, you know, that's just to say that creating a successful store, again, not to emphasize this so obvious point, but it's, it's a lot about, you know, like I said, diversifying your customer base and coding the store to be more diverse and diversifying, you know, types of games and it's also just in general about being a welcoming person, you know, about demeanor. People know that they'll get a negative review if, if a customer has a problem, not all the time, but that is something I also see retailers post about. And my favorite responses are when someone is apologetic and says, you know, that's, that's out of the norm. We're sorry you had that experience or whatever it is. And, you know, sure, you might want to defend your staff and be on the side of your staff a bit. But I also think it's really important to acknowledge that that person did have a negative experience and say, you know, we, we try our best to create a warm, welcoming space. And I'm sorry you didn't have that at the time. So, you know, I like that idea of like addressing reviews to, you know, just head on and, and you know, being somewhat at least apologetic and, and saying that that's not who we are usually. Um, again, don't want to retail explain or publisher explain, sorry, publisher explain how to do retail. But um, that warm and welcoming nature is so much a part of, you know, creating a a successful great store yeah and i think uh the perfect 
counterexample, the anti-game store owner that you want to think of in your mind, is the comic book store guy from The Simpsons. <laughs> like the, uh, was it the creaky robot or something like that. Uh, that guy, the old comic book store character of the, the, the grumpy dude sitting behind the counter who doesn't want anyone coming into the store because they're interrupting him reading his comic books. Oh, no. That's the kind of person you do not want to be. Right? Like that's the person who's not going to thrive in business in general, but especially in this business, like mm-hmm. as much. And I think this, this actually does touch on a little bit about uh, one of the most common uh, mistakes I think new store owners end up making is that they love the hobby. So they think that this is a great thing to get into and they want to turn it into a business, but then that's not a good platform to start with mm-hmm. because as much as you love it, the business itself is very different from the hobby. You know, like you're selling it, you're not playing it anymore. And, you know, pretty much every game store owner will tell you that uh, their favorite game now is being a game store owner. Like it's not, they, they have no time to play games to what the thing that got them into the business in the first place, uh, that becomes very challenging to, yeah. to really keep in their life. So you have to be okay with that and you have to be separated from what you previously loved in, to some sort of regard. And you can't, can't hoard it all. You can't hoard the game or can't hoard the products and feel like this is your private space. And if you approach it from that perspective, uh, especially when you are young or you're inexperienced and you haven't really been, been around the block for a while, uh, that mm-hmm. turns a lot of people off, hmm. right? There's a lot of people who come in. Like this is why game stores, if people do find out about them, they tend to have a bad reputation amongst the general population because they somebody walks in Usually, like if a family walked into, like I mentioned, Toys R Us, they have the same experience at every Toys R Us across the nation for the most part, right? You have this big retail space. It's it's well lit. The kind of, the employees will say, you know, how can I help you? What can I how can I help you find what you're looking for? And you have the same general experience. But in a a lot of the game stores, they might walk in with their family, look around. And realize, well, this isn't for me. And then, like, they'll turn around because the space itself is either dark or it's a, uh, you know, it's uh, it's dirty or it's not well, uh, not well merchandised in some situations, or it's just a bunch of tables with a bunch of people with their heads down, and nobody says hello, or like, there's there's a lot of instances that turn people off from mm-hmm. this kind of uh, kind of a shopping retail experience. And yeah, the idea of being that person behind the counter who's not okay with having a conversation with somebody, like you're, you're not in the right business if that's what you want to do or if that's what you think this is all about. Right. And I've almost never seen a person quite like you described, which is a good thing. I had forgotten about that man who owns the store from The Simpsons. I used to watch the, the Simpsons is, they, every They don't tend to last very long. That's the thing. Right? Ah. Yeah, you have to have that outgoing, friendly demeanor, right? Yeah. Well, I'll... The, it would be really interesting to see the data, but it's really hard to capture. But I would be really interested to see how many stores pop up and then disappear within the first year. Because I'm sure there's a lot. There's just this constant churn of stores opening and closing and opening and closing because people try to give it a shot. And, you know, for a variety of reasons, they, they underestimate their, uh, their ability for success or they overestimate their ability for success. And then, you know, they, they clo- quietly close up shop. And I think a lot of it will be because of those those people going into it with the wrong mindset of this is my place, my space. I'm going to run it my way. I don't really care about what other people think. Right. That sounds like a real shame if you have a store that that is focused on your own needs or, or specifically your own interest. 
Now, obviously, people have to have a passion for the products, and I have, you know, Monster Runner in particular who seems less, he's just not so into party games, so since he's less into party games, he seems less intent on bringing them into a store. He had not brought in Wing It originally, and then when he did, I was actually visiting a store out in Las Vegas, when he decided to bring in, I think, just five or six, I noticed later he was selling them online, I thought, wow, if, if he's not even selling five or six at the store, I mean, maybe he just cross-references on them online, cross-references them online automatically, but my point to say is, you know, it does help if the store owner or maybe a particular staff person in your, is, you know, really into your product, right? So I have definitely had places where Wing It was one of the staff's favorite games, and that obviously helps them sell the game, right? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, the, the person who comes to my mind when you're talking about that was uh, Kylie Primus, and uh, he owns Games Unlimited. And he talks mm -hmm. a lot. He was at Gamma, and he talked about yeah, uh, when he was on the podcast – six or seven months ago now he talked about uh selling games because obviously board games is his thing that's like he's an expert at board games and that's how he built his business but the idea that just because you don't like a particular style of game doesn't mean that that game isn't worth something to the to your customers so like he talked about how you know maybe like you said, like party games are not your style, right? Maybe that's just how you feel as the owner. You just don't like party games. That's okay. That doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of people in your customer base, in your community, who probably love party games. And you, I don't want to say like they deserve them, but like you can't negate the value of a particular kind of board game or a particular kind of gaming experience just because you don't like it. You have to be okay and open to helping people find whatever they're looking for in terms of the gaming and the gaming experience that they want to have with them and their friends. Mm -hmm. Don't, uh, don't push something aside just because it's not your cup of tea. Right. And that goes back to the idea we talked about just about building community. You know, you're building a community of so many people who are unlike you in many ways, including what their actual interests are, not just in terms of their, you know, ethnic background or, or, you know, gender identity and so on, but also just in terms of their interests. So building a community for all types, that's one of the reasons that I think it would be really hard for me to have a game store is I just don't understand magic. and I've just never gotten into magic at this point. But, you know, it's really important to carry Magic the Gathering if, if you, you know, if you can handle it, um, keeping up with that, because, you know, that's such a huge part of the gaming community. I do want to bring up the, um, the issue of online sales. People love building communities so much, but without having in-person events. You know, I know that some store owners have really missed them. Some store owners have felt like, well, it's nice to not have all that time spent on running events. I know that uh, a really successful game store owner is Kath Kathleen from Labyrinth. Have you had mm -hmm. her on before? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Kathleen is amazing. Kathleen Donahue. And she and I are, are, are friends are friendly. I, I like to think of her as a friend. I've actually interviewed her as well. And she is someone who I look up to in different ways. And one way is I just like how she's even building community over her Facebook group. And that's another way she, you know, kind of says out there what's really going on and how tough things have been at different times during the past year. So the reason I mention her is because, you know, she, she really genuinely misses, it seems, having people in the store. Labyrinth posted about how much they missed having people stop by the store and have their kid with them or, you know, having the camp there and having lots of kids there for game nights. And so or for gaming camp, rather. So I want to mention that it's it's hard for some game store owners not to be able to have the kind of community right now that they have spent years creating a space for and building up. And the other side of that is the, the far 
side of, of, of interaction is the lack of interaction, right? And that's through an online seller. People just order something and you ship it. Or, you know, you do, right, curbside delivery or delivering to the house so or to the person's home. So I wanted to just ask you first before I mention anything else, have, have many people gotten on and talked about online sales that they've shifted to? I know John did, John Coviello. Yes, I've had a few people talk about it, but not too many on the podcast. Not recently. There's okay. been a lot of discussion around uh, online, though, especially okay. since COVID started. Well, since you just mentioned that a few people have, I'll just share, but, but keep it really brief, which I wanted to do anyway, since I know we're we're definitely over over an hour for now. Going long. Yes, I just wanted to, to at least mention this today that some of my most successful retailers, some of the retailers who I see as most successful have started online stores that are very active. I know John Coviello's store is one of them. And, or, they, or well, he already had one, but some of them have started new ones and I started them and got them up really quickly, right? And some of the more successful ones have done deliveries to far out in British Columbia and Canada. That's the retailer I work with um, out there in Invermere, British Columbia is Main Street Fun and Games. And they'll post pictures of going way out in a rural area making game deliveries. So it does strike me that retailers who seem to be some of the more successful, or just I would say most successful. In fact, I would say these are some who's, who seem um, most successful just because they have, you know, seem to have a good community and a good following. They're, they're surviving the pandemic for one thing. But, but in general, those stores are able to make a shift really quickly. So they shifted to doing, again, the online stores or just doing, um, you know, personal deliveries. That seems super important to be able to pivot and also, I recognize not everybody has the staff for that. So that's where curbside comes in, obviously. But I, I don't need to get too much into that because I feel like stores either know they have the capacity at this point or they don't have the capacity. But it does seem to be a common thread among a lot of stores to have that online, you know, version of their store. So that was one thing I thought of in advance that I just hadn't gotten to yet. So even if you cut that part out, just wanted to mention it so that it was at least said. No, that's, that's, not, that's definitely important, especially now. And it's never, like, it's never been easier to get your store online. Like it, it, every day gets a little bit simpler. Like there's, there are so many ways to get a store online within the space of a weekend mm -hmm. that, and, and for very little money compared to what it was like 10 years ago, 10 years ago, like, like John would tell you, he, he like set this whole thing up. He was doing this way before everyone else was doing it, or at least in a lot of, a lot of uh, cases of game store owners. And he built a lot of it, you know, himself. Like he put the whole thing together and he created a lot of the, uh, a lot of the systems that he uses to, to still at this point, he still uses, but for him, it was, it's a huge undertaking to create that kind of stuff. Whereas now you can just create a Shopify store, you know, in, in five minutes, you can have it set up and you can have it online in like the next 15. And then you can start uploading and you start populating and start adding, you know, products and stuff. And you can get that thing rolling. Like I said, within a space of a weekend, there's no reason for you not to do it at this point. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's becoming more and more important in just the business world in general. Like uh, people are, are being trained to buy online, right? Like it's Amazon's becoming more like, it's not going away, or at least it's not on the decline right at this point, more people are shopping online, more people are comfortable putting their credit card on a website. It's no longer a big deal. People aren't just aren't scared that someone's going to scam them. Although it does happen. But the idea that people are more comfortable shopping over the internet and, getting their stuff delivered to the door or going and picking it up in person is, uh, is something that's not going away and it's only getting bigger. And there's, mm -hmm. there's no reason not to get your store to 
online and get a part of that, you know, get in on the action. Because like I said, there's, there's very little cost. There's only a little bit of investment in terms of time and depending on how many SKUs you got. Uh, but generally speaking, it's relatively easy and it's never been easier. So like you should, I 100% agree, you need to get your store online. However you go about doing that, you know, if there's other ways. There are a whole bunch of options out there like uh, Binder POS and there's Shopify and there's, uh, oh, I can't think of all of them at this point, but there's a, there's a lot. There's a, there's a whole bunch of options that you can definitely take, a, uh, take advantage of and, and for, for almost pennies compared to what it would cost to pay a developer to create a website for you. Yeah. Well, and having used Wix and Shopify, my co-founder and I at this point have used both kinds of stores. I can definitely recommend both of those as options. So for anyone who doesn't have a store, I know Shopify is pretty standard. Wix worked just fine for us too. But we, we shifted to Shopify just because we were advised to do so since it's pretty much the standard one at this point. And that was another thing just to zoom out from what I said. You know, as any business owner knows, you know, ideally, if, if you haven't learned this yet, it's just important to be able to pivot quickly. I mean, we haven't pivoted as quickly as I wanted to on the shift to doing more B2C sales. And that's probably because my co-founder just hasn't been able to, to work with the business recently because of a health crisis in his family. But I'll just mention that we are shifting into, hopefully in a big way, into doing a lot more B2C sales and reaching out to in individual gamers through Facebook ads. So I reach out to people in Singapore and they've done a ton of work on this. I got, I apparently convinced them to come to Gamma last year. I didn't even know that they'd come because of me posting on a Facebook group, but they had flown from Singapore for Gamma and for other things. And they have had so much success with Facebook ads as have the people from checking the national parks from underdog games, that is, that I decided to shift a lot into Facebook ads and did a little on my own in December, then realized I needed help. So, you know, just the takeaway there is I knew to get support from people who really had already had success and knew in a big way what they were doing on Facebook ads. So now we've advised each other, myself and the team from Lord of the Chords, which is again, a company and a game based in Singapore, have coached each other a lot. So yeah, look for mentors, folks. I mean, as much as you can find a mentor who's done what you wanna do, and see if you can make that pivot with their support. We're all in it together, yeah, y'all. I mean, that's really important. We're all in it together. Yeah, and we don't have to compete. That was probably one of the uh, one of the best pieces of advice I got from somebody when I was really young. In terms of business, you don't have to compete most of the time. You don't have to compete. You don't have to try and undercut. You don't have to uh, feel like you're uh, on opposing teams, even if you are directly uh, like you know, in competing businesses, two game stores in the same city, you can still cooperate, you can still work together, you can still uh, find a way to collaborate and, you know, do mutually beneficial things uh, so that both of you succeed. You don't have to hurt the other person in order for that to work. Yeah, the idea that uh, you can learn from other people who have who've done what you want to do or have a different skill set than you. Like, maybe not... Uh, they don't have to be uh, exactly in the same industry as you. Like, like you said, that uh, like theoretically, you could have learned uh, how to run Facebook ads from somebody who who wasn't a game publisher, right? Just somebody who's like, ah, yeah, I figured it out. I got, I I know how to write the ad. I know how to schedule the uh, uh, the post. I know how to do the audiences and all that fun stuff. Look for people who don't have. Uh, look for people with a different skill set than you, and try and uh, try and find some way that you can be valuable to them. I think, uh, like that was a theme of, of my interview with, uh, Brenda and Porik from, uh, Nightwatch games too. Oh. Uh, yeah. He, uh, 
they have a very complimentary, like, they have a really nice, nice store, a fantastic looking store. Uh, aesthetically, it's beautiful. But they've, uh, they're a husband and wife team and they, they have, like you said, like they're the yin and yang. Like he's, uh, he's the dreamer and she's the, she's the grinder. She's the one who, who's, who knows the numbers and puts it in the work. And he's uh, kind of like, I've got the vision and I have a big strategy and we make it work together. And the idea that you can kind of find someone who fits that puzzle piece for you. And uh, yeah, definitely agree and think that's a great idea. Find mentors where you can. That's so important. I was thinking that's so important what you said particularly about you're not a competitor. I mean, literally in cities where they're 20, 10 or 20 minutes apart, they are competitors, but hopefully they can still go into each other's stores just to learn from each other, even by looking around a game store. Not everyone has the ability to visit 250 stores, I realize, but you can definitely go into game stores when you're on vacation, visit another store an hour, a few hours away, and see what feels welcoming in a space, like what physically feels welcoming, what emotionally feels welcoming when you just walk around a store. So I, I really like what you said about finding mentors. I mean, just like I had mentioned before, but also what you said about, you know, there's someone who's done what you're trying to do. It's okay to walk into their store and, and learn. I, hopefully you're learning from each other, right? Even if there's a store that's like down the street from you, you know, 10, 10 units away, they're, they're doing the exact same thing as you. There's still an opportunity for you to, to cooperate and that you can say, okay, what are you doing on Wednesdays? Okay, you're doing that. I'm going to do something that's not that. I'm going to do something that's a little bit different and attracts a different group. And I'm going to, you know, try and, like, I, I'm going to bring in the 40K players on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, I'll do the magic and you can do the 40K on Thursday, right? Like, you can still work out a way so that you're not trying to actively step on each other. Mm-hmm. Even if you are, like, literally as, you know, as competing as you could possibly be. If you're in, the, in that situation, there's still opportunities to cooperate. Oh, definitely. And I feel like, Hopefully this is true for retailers too, certainly within publishing. I feel like no one is too small to learn from. And I feel like no retailer is too small for me to go visit or to build a relationship with. I have a retailer who doesn't order a ton of games at a time. And, you know, we have a pretty tight relationship. Now we must have talked for like over three hours the other night. But we had started out talking because he runs a Facebook group that he wants me to put a post up in about one of our games to do a giveaway. It's a Facebook group about weird secondhand finds. So I didn't understand how it was related, but he just wants us to offer to do a giveaway based on pictures people post of penguins in their house, anything with a penguin on it. And so that's really cool because our, you know, our first two games have penguins on them, right? So it turns out he runs his Facebook group with over 2 million members. Well, he's a fairly small customer, but first of all, everybody's important in their own way. And second of all, he's offering me this huge opportunity. So I want to be really clear that nobody can ever be too small or should ever be too small for you to become friends with and, and build a relationship with. And even if you're not convinced about that from just a human relationship perspective and an emotional perspective, you can definitely be convinced about it from a business perspective. Again, I've learned so much from friends who have made one game or a game in an expansion. You know, I've learned a lot about what they're doing better. And frankly, you know, a lot of people have other jobs or full-time jobs besides what they do. I don't. I'm not at the point yet where I'm earning a sustainable income from my work and, you know, might have another, you know, job, you know, hopefully at some point in the near future. But what I realized was I was able to do so much and learn so much about getting into retail, partly because I was earning so little and taking this, you know, financial risk, this flying leap into full-time entrepreneurship. It is flying leap games, right? That's, that was a line. Just want to make sure that was, people knew that was a line. So I took this flying leap into entrepreneurship and, I visit all these stores because I could, but if people want to learn other ways to get into retail, I do have a piece that was recorded by Gamma, a workshop 
that actually we have one that has me in it, a recording, and then one that doesn't have me in it. So if people want to find that, they can you know, reach out to me, um, just flyingleapgames at, at gmail.com. But what I'm saying that for is that there are lots of ways to get into retail besides going and visiting all the stores. I mentioned Gamma. There's also a cold call mini project I did or mini experiment I did. There's also just walking into stores when you're on vacation. You know, there's, like you said earlier, it's something I haven't explored a lot, which is doing referrals, asking, you know, actually asking stores to spread the word on your behalf. So the point being, you don't have to be full time to get into a few hundred stores. And look, I know a small company that's in thousands of stores. I would love to be in thousands of stores. So we still have a lot of growing to do. And part of that is, is you know, B2C getting into, um, you know, these Facebook ads as a way to sell directly to people who have ideally four or more people in their home. But also we're looking to expand into Target and we're partnering with a much bigger company to see if um, they'll end up pitching us to Target, which they would like to in the, in the near future. So just finding partners who can teach you the things, who can do the things that you don't know how to do yet, again, is super important. And hopefully we can uh, we can get you in front of some stores and and uh, we'll get some, uh, drum up some interest and get in uh, Wing It and the other games in the line in that business too. That sounds great. You I never know. Awesome. You never know who you uh, end up working with or who you end up connecting with and what, it, what the relationship ends up turning into later on. Definitely. You never know. Well, thank you, Tom. Any any final thoughts or questions? I know we've gone well over the hour, both of us probably expected, and I hope you haven't missed your dinner here. But um, if you have any questions you wanted to wrap with or come to want to wrap with, you know, I mean, that's that's your thing. Sure, sure. I've got a couple questions, but yes. First of all, thank you very much for for giving me your time. You know, like like you said, this went on a lot longer than uh, we originally anticipated, but. You know, sometimes that happens, and that's cool. It was it was fun talking to you. I really appreciate it. So I'll start with the, the question that I usually ask people on the show, and because the general topic is success, and the success is really uh, subjective and nebulous, and the term itself means a lot, right? So what success means to somebody might not mean or might not be the same thing to someone else. So my question to you would be, what does success look like for you in terms of flying league games? Wow. That question is particularly relevant on today, a Friday, one week after I saw this same topic come up on clubhouse, the all audio app that I'm now really actively on and promoting in the game community a lot. So the question was, you know, what is success? Is it money? Is it happiness? Well, so I'll be honest. First of all, just enjoying what you do. I kind of came up with that on the spot, but I do think that's a big part of it. You you want to, you know, ideally choose a career where you don't have to enjoy everything. I mean, there are parts of my job that are really hard to get to, like, you know, getting those final ads up or whatever it is. But if you enjoy connecting with people, if you enjoy making games, which I do, and if you enjoy making people laugh, I really love that part of my work, then that's part of success. Just enjoying some of the major parts, at least, of, of running my company is indicative of success. I think veering away from viewing money as part of success, at least early on, is part of, you know, changing your framework of mind a little bit in, in our culture, at least. And so, you know, I don't earn a lot. I'm not, you know, earning a, um, close to what my friends from business school are, but I'm building up a company, hope to probably sell it off in a few years since I have other, you know, um, paths I wanna pursue. But I feel like right now it's okay to say part of success is taking a hit early on in your, you know, financial, you know, well-being and taking a risk when you can take it. I don't have kids yet, so it's easier to, to, to take that risk. And 
you know, being willing to do that is part of success, being willing to jump in and take risk. I guess not to toot my own horn, but like, I think that's part of my success is that I was willing to go on these big trips and do it the scrappy way and visit, you know, again, over 250 game stores. So um, 275 with, with the other kinds of stores in there. And I'll just say that part of success is also being willing and able to learn a lot from other people and then adapt those lessons and make changes in your business based on those lessons. That's, that leads you to success, but it's also the recipe for success is learning from other people. And then this is one that came up almost right away for me somehow when you mentioned, you know, you're trying to ask what does success look like? I think it looks like recognizing what you've learned and how to convey that information and who to convey it to enough to pass on the lessons you learn. So in other words, big, the big picture here is part of success is doing what you're doing with this work that you're in right now. And what I like to do off and on with publishers who reach out to me or who I reach out to is to pass on the lessons, pass on the wisdom, if you will. So again, part of success is helping other people. And since that sounds a little patronizing, I don't love that phrasing, part of success is empowering other people is supporting other people and being successful. Finding the small publishers on Instagram, finding like them that. at Yama. Thanks. Thanks. Kind of came up with it on the spot when you started talking about what is success. And I, you know, but I do really believe it's true. And I think that that's part of what makes me feel good about my work is that I'm able to have somewhat of a bird's eye view and say, here are the nitty gritty nuts and bolts of how to do what I have done. I mean, I think that's partly why when I did a what was going to be about a 45 or 50 minute presentation last year. It, it started about 10 minutes in, I think, due to technical issues. And we ended up going about 90 minutes last year at Gamma. And that's what the presentation I mentioned that was recorded. Part of why that went so long is I just let everybody ask their questions, but also because I'd done something people wanted to figure out how to do, which is getting into, you know, a few hundred stores. And I do think there's something to these trips that I've done that people can replicate for pretty low budget. It is harder with a full-time job, but you can, you know, again, combine it with, going on vacations or smaller trips or game conventions, I always say, stay, try to stay a half day later or a day later and, and visit stores in the area. So there are ways to do it at smaller scale. I don't want to say you have to go out and do this, but I think what I've done is part of success is saying, I want to get into retail and then figure out how to do it and, and doing it, setting a goal. Now I would say, you know, we need to grow partly because, you know, it's a financial struggle at times, especially during a pandemic, but it's just a financial struggle at times for me and, and for the company. And that's where I recognize, okay, like I have a lot to learn from actually publishers who have one game or one game in expansion, you know, really two games out because they've done big things in, in the B2C area. And I found out how they did that. And then I want to try to replicate what they've done. So again, that's the part of success I mentioned that's learning from other people. So that, that, again, will hopefully lead me to more success. Maybe maybe in the future, maybe in several months or a year, I'll be on your podcast again and speak about how I found success in a new way. And I hope I hope that I have that I knowledge that. to share. Yeah. So so I feel like I'm going into many er, 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 types of success and many, many ways that you can illustrate success. But there are various areas of our lives. One is helping others. One is, you know, succeeding in the, the goals that we set. You know, one is just being happy in what you do, and those are all different ways to be successful. It almost seems like I'm getting a bit corny here, but this is all true that, you know, enjoying what you do. Some days I really love it, some days it's really hard. It's been really hard to dive back into, you know, that direct-to-retail sales. I do a lot of calls, and it's been hard to get back into that recently. But, you know, now that things are picking up again, especially I think um, as more people get vaccinated, since I'm post-gamma, I have more connections here. 
I do want to dive back into that. And that's building on current success, right? Building on success that we've had in retail and trying to get the word out about, you know, our newest game, the Million Dollar Doodle, and our two games coming out and seeing if I can try in, in a big way, hopefully in a big way, not just a little way, in a big way to replicate the success of Wing It to some extent with the other games that we carry and will carry in the future. So, but you know what? This this business is a struggle and it's an uphill battle. I just want to empathize with anyone who is having a, a hard time getting into retail or having a hard time building up any of their sales channels that it's a struggle and and we, me, myself, but also we as the other publishers, we're here for you. We're here to help and we're here to support each other and we'll learn a lot from each other. And that's part of being successful is just, you know, giving back to the broader board game community. Good answer. Thanks. Good answer. Thanks, Tom. Right. That was a lot I just said. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, uh, I think it keeps in, in with the spirit of the question because success, like life isn't a single race where you hit the finish line and you, you, you know, you won, right? That's not, not how it works. There's, it's like, I don't even say it's a series of races because that's one after another. It's like a million parallel races and you're in different versions of, of different things and you might be succeeding in one area and failing in another. And like the idea of uh, there's a lot of business owners and it's very mm -hmm. common in entrepreneurship, especially for people to like dive into their business and really put a lot of work and effort and sweat and tears and, uh, you know, like do really well there and then have their life fall apart because they've wasted all their time or they, they put so much time of their, so much of their life in the one area. And then I don't personally, I feel like that, that would be an ultimate overall uh, failure is that if your life, if your family life it deteriorates because you spend all your life at work, I would say that's, that's not a good thing. Uh, so the idea that there are different ways of succeeding. There are different methods of uh, measuring success. Like there are different goals that you're trying to achieve. Like I think that all, it's all part of the overall vision of what you're trying to, trying to go for. And I think you're trying to do the good. I think that's probably the, <laughs> what's the good, you know, like what you're trying to make the world a better place and how you're doing it is by making people happy. I think that's uh, a reasonable a way to go about doing it. And I think that's a, a reasonable way of thinking about it. And uh, yeah, so I was going to ask if you had any like closing wisdom or parting words of wisdom for the listeners, but like I think you dropped like ten little gold nuggets of there over the uh, the last few minutes. So thanks. I really like what you just said. I was just going to say that that I really like what you said about making people happy. I didn't even think about including that, and that's part of success too is making sure our games are making people happy. And I feel like when we do get reviews, that is most of the feedback we get that that people are enjoying what we create. So that's really important too. Games are a great vehicle for international and just personal and general connections. And, and I, I've, I think I've said that before at some point in the past on one of the episodes that game stores or game store owners should be super jazzed and pumped about what they're doing because you're literally selling happiness and like ethical happiness. Yeah. You're not selling cigarettes or booze or something like that. You're selling games and connection and friendship and that sort of thing. And you're making the world a better place by doing it. So, and I'm, uh, uh, Lynn from the game board would say that you're also selling, you know, mental health as well. And you're helping people stay sharp and, and all that, all that good stuff. It's just good stuff. Feel good about it. You should, uh, you should be pretty pumped about that. Uh, so I think that's a great place to close. <laughs> we're going on two hours. I can't believe how much you're, yeah, how much we're going. And I, I, I'm fine with it. I just was hoping that you were fine with it too. Oh yeah, no problem. It's nighttime where I'm at now, uh, but oh, uh, yeah, I've enjoyed the conversation. I always like it when they 
when a conversation goes long like this, it's usually a really good sign. So I, I'm That's glad good. to have had, I'm glad I met you randomly in the gamma spatial chat booth and I ended up in your fondue fountain or something like that. <laughs> I, uh, Glad that worked out and that we connected and we were able to do this. Me too. And since we're still recording, this is what I want to close the recording with, okay? Please do. That's okay. Yeah. I was giving a tip to a friend, Kurt from Smirk and Dagger Games, or also Smirk and Laughter, about a place to sell online, Uncommon Goods, recently. And he asked me at one point, he said, why are you so fabulous? which is a really sweet thing to say. I'm almost embarrassed to, to share. I mean, you know, not to brag, but he said, why are you so fabulous? And I told him that, you know, I had been given a lot early on. We'd given him a lot of mentorship from Paul from Greater Than Games and other people. And I couldn't always pay it back, but I wanted to pay it forward. And then I told him that I view us all as hiking together. You know, everybody in the game industry, whether you're a publisher or a retailer too, I was talking about in the context of publishers, we're all sort of hiking together and someone gets up a steep incline first, like maybe a wall we scramble over. And I scramble over it first, so I reach behind me to pull the other person up. And then at the next wall, the next obstacle to surmount, you scramble over that first, or another publisher scrambles over that. And she or he or they reaches up to pull me up and help us up along the way. So that's how I feel. We're all kind of helping each other up. And then we reach the top of the mountain, whatever that mountain is. Maybe that's success, happiness, hopefully both. We reach that faster because we're all pulling each other up. So that's what I want to leave people with that image of us hiking and, and pulling each other up together. I really that like hiking. Good, good metaphor. Thank you. All right. All right. Before we officially sign off, where can people go to find out more about you? Do this, the shameless plug. Great. Thank you. That's what I really wanted to end with is to share how to, how to be in touch. So our website is flyingleapgames.com. You can also get on our email list there and we send very, very occasional emails. And you can also interact with us just really directly. I'm on Instagram all the time as at Flying Leap Games. A little more occasionally on Facebook as Flying Leap Games or Wing It. That's one that's a particular one. But Flying Leap Games on Facebook would be great. And then we're at Penguin Soaring on Twitter. At Penguin Soaring because of our flying penguin on two of our games. So I would say where we're most active is Flying Leap Games on Instagram. And please do check out our website, flyingleapgames.com. Please be in touch directly if you ever want to email me. I'm at flyingleapgames at gmail.com. That may change in the near future, but that'll be on our website. So flyingleapgames at gmail.com. I love hearing from people. Please reach out for support. Please reach out if you want to talk about our games or about your games or about your store. I would love to get to know you, whoever you are, and make a connection with each other and, and chat. All right, beautiful. And that'll all be linked up in the show notes as well on the website, so uh, people can go check that out. Uh, if they you know, don't know how to spell Flying Leap Games or something like that, it'll be super easy. Just click on the button and it'll take you there. Great. Well, thank you very much, Molly, for coming on the show and, and giving me your time and wisdom and your knowledge and expertise and just putting in the effort and being who you are. I appreciate thank it. Thank you. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we met at Gamma 2. I'm glad we had the show today. All right, thanks for listening to today's interview with Molly Zeff. Make sure you check out flyingleapgames.com and grab some copies of Wing It for your game store. And when you do, make sure that you tell Molly that Tom sent you. If you want to be part of a community of peers on your business journey to share ideas with and continue learning, then you can become a member of the Maniverse Network by going to maniversesocket.com forward slash join. That's where you can get access to all the seminars from the recent LGS Success Summit, 
as well as additional exclusive members-only content, marketing reviews, and training. Until next time, I'm Tom Trappa, I've been your host. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in the next episode of the Maniverse Podcast.